0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Saving for a rainy day used to be a popular notion, if not always practiced. And one economic measure used by many governments to help them plan ahead and manage future economic shocks is what's called a sovereign wealth fund. On paper, at least, sovereign wealth funds seem tailor-made for the sort of economic crises many countries are now facing. So how have they functioned during COVID-19? And in broader terms, are they worth the investment? That's our theme today. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Let's start with the definition. Here's Dr Angela Kamine, a former Oxford academic and author of the book Citizens' Wealth.
0: So the first sovereign wealth fund that we know of dates back to 1816, set up in France after Napoleon had raided the coffers and the French state was very keen to make sure that there was a pot of money that could be quarantined and protected from its political leaders. Today we've got around 150 of these funds globally managing about $9 trillion in assets. And there's some disagreement over the precise definition, but essentially these are government owned and controlled pots of wealth that are invested in financial assets to generate a return and support different public policy goals.
1: Over the past 30 years, The government of Norway has been saving lots of money for its citizens. Norway manages the world's largest sovereign wealth fund. This fund belongs to every Norwegian citizen, with over 5 million people. The most celebrated sovereign wealth fund is probably Norway's. It's now worth around $1.4 trillion and was originally set up in the 1990s to ensure the country of just over 5 million people didn't blow the riches to be had from their vast oil deposits. Its approach proved globally influential, according to Duncan McCann, a senior researcher with the New Economics Foundation in the UK.
2: So when you're a small country and suddenly you discover, you know, huge amounts of natural resources to try and spend that within your domestic economy straight away would create problems domestically. It would create inflation and things like that, which would be hugely problematic. It's also a very sensible thing to do when you think you're depleting a non-renewable resource rather than spend all of that money in the generation or two when you're actually extracting it. It makes a lot of sense to keep some of that money so that future generations can also kind of benefit from that. And countries that don't have natural assets in their economy are also jumping onto this. And so you're seeing many created now with kind of balance of payment surpluses. So that's where a country like China, which exports so much more than it imports, it builds up a huge reserves of foreign currency and has started putting those to sovereign wealth funds. But also there are countries exploiting the very, very cheap borrowing out there if a state can go and borrow at less than 1%, put that into a fund and hope to make maybe a 4 or 5% return on that money, that's a potentially a very, very good way of starting up. And so you've seen a number of European countries, but also countries around the world kind of opting for that route. You also have kind of the, the privatisations, which is obviously how Australia's part-funded the start of the Future Fund in Australia was through the privatisation of Telstra. So absolutely, we are going way beyond just thinking about what to do with the proceeds of natural resource extraction and thinking about these proactively and how we might use some of the other large sums of money that come through the government coffers to put away for future generations rather than just spending it all today.
1: And just picking up on the last bit, future generations, I know there are the significant variation between the way in which funds are structured and and their purpose. But do they have to be future focused? Is that one of the characteristics of a sovereign wealth fund?
2: I mean, I think that's really one of the huge potentials that they have. And again, the best ones are really thinking about that future aspect. I think many were really set up and indeed many that are managed still today can be seen much more in the light of, you know, kind of global strategic power being exercised via these huge funds as they go in and buy kind of key assets. So there's definitely a a group of sovereign wealth funds that are really more about geopolitical power and posturing and taking assets rather than necessarily about the future. But some of the most exciting ones, so you can think of the Alaska Permanent Fund, you could think of the Norwegian Fund, even the Future Fund in Australia and the Superannuation Fund in New Zealand, you know, are all explicitly Thinking about the future and targeting the future. And I think, you know, I think the biggest challenge for, for setting up these things is the idea of building in that long-term thinking into our politics more generally. And these funds help shift our thinking into that kind of long-term mode.
1: This video explains what is a sovereign wealth fund, which are the global top 50 sovereign wealth funds, and do Russia and India have SWFs or not? Before we explain what is a sovereign wealth fund. We must say that there
0: are different So there's differences both in the, in the structure of the funds some of them are managed internally in treasuries or ministries of finance while others are set up as independent entities so for instance our our future fund in Australia has a separate board that governs that fund, it's its own corporate entity managing the funding versus the world's biggest fund that many people know about the Norwegian oil fund. It's actually situated within the Norwegian Ministry of Finance. So there's often a different governance approach. Funds also are quite different in terms of how they invest their assets. So some are willing to take on a lot of risk, are quite diversified across lots of assets. Others are are more conservative and just seeking more to preserve wealth over time and face less risk in terms of the asset classes that they go into.
1: And some are open and transparent and some are not, says economist Andrew Bauer, a consultant with the Natural Resource Governance Institute in the United States.
3: Today, there are a lot of other government entities that are calling themselves sovereign wealth funds, uh, like the Russian Direct Investment Fund or the Palestinian Investment Fund or India's National Investment Infrastructure Fund. These funds are just domestic investors. And because they invest in domestic equities, they're highly politicized. And so there are a set of funds now in the world that are still doing that traditional job of saving future generations or helping to smooth fiscal expenditure like in Chile or Peru or Norway, but there are also a set of funds that arguably were created to circumvent parliamentary oversight or finance the political or personal ambitions of the president. Funds like the Angolan Fund, the Libyan Fund, the Azerbaijan Fund, these are all funds that while they might do some good things in, in certain places, they have a parallel role you know, serving a special interests. These are opaque funds, they're unaccountable funds, they're basically slush funds.
0: As coronavirus shut down the global economy, the value of American stocks plummeted. In the weeks that followed, COVID-19 killed tens of thousands of Americans.
1: 2020, of course, proved a massive economic and social test for most countries in the world and a serious strain on economic resources. So, was having a sovereign wealth fund an advantage during the pandemic?
3: I wouldn't say countries with sovereign wealth funds were better prepared. Countries that were better prepared were better prepared. And what do we mean by that? We mean countries that either saved a lot of money or kept sovereign debt levels low. Among those countries that did well or handled the uh, crisis well or were well prepared for the crisis, some of them have sovereign wealth funds and some don't. Botswana, Chile, Peru, Malaysia. Malaysia has a very well-run fund and a very poorly-run fund. Qatar, those countries have sovereign wealth funds. But Bolivia, Tanzania, Namibia, South Africa, they don't. And then you have countries that have sovereign wealth funds that were poorly prepared for the crisis, countries like Angola, Mongolia, Nigeria, Iran. So just having a sovereign wealth fund doesn't mean that your public finances are in good shape. What you need is, is to make sure that overall your, your public finances are in good shape, which means that you're probably keeping public debt levels low so that when there's a crisis, you can borrow.
1: Did many countries dip into their sovereign wealth funds to pay for emergency measures?
3: One of the things that we were surprised by, and in this case, uh, we as the Natural Resource Governance Institute, which is a New York-based think tank, is how little sovereign wealth funds dipped into their savings. So sovereign wealth funds control assets valued at approximately $9 trillion right now, depending on how you define sovereign wealth funds. Some people put a higher figure, some people put a lower figure. But only about $160 billion was withdrawn from these funds during the COVID crisis. So that's less than 2% of the assets that these funds hold. And that was driven largely by withdrawals in Russia, in Norway, a little bit Mexico, Peru, Singapore. And uh, the question is why? And part of the reason is a good reason that some of these countries with large funds also had low debt levels. So they could, instead of drawing down on these funds and hurting their long-term returns, they could just borrow at 1-2% interest. That was the case in Qatar. It was the case here where I'm from in in Quebec, in Canada.
1: Because interest Uh, rates are at an
3: all-time low, aren't they? Exactly. Well, interest rates are an all-time low if you're from a rich country. If you're from a poor country, interest rates actually increased during COVID. So the, the gap between the amount poor countries like Nigeria and Ghana were paying during COVID, and countries like Canada and Australia increased pretty drastically during the COVID crisis. So, you know, most of the countries with at least the biggest funds didn't need to draw down on those savings. And then, of course, the countries that really did need those savings often are the ones that just didn't have the money. Yeah, the other reason is that a lot of funds had dry powder, which is just excess liquid cash prior to the COVID crisis because markets were seen as overvalued. For example, both in Panama and Norway, money was withdrawn from those funds, but they didn't actually have to sell any assets or very few assets because they already had that cash on hand. So does that
1: mean that well-performing sovereign wealth funds need to have not just an adequate structure to them, but also adequate cash reserves built into their operations?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sovereign wealth funds need cash. I mean, first just to pay employees to invest when there are investment opportunities, but also sometimes to cover cash calls. There are a lot of funds around the world that own businesses like oil fields, mines, projects that require cash injections from time to time to expand production. And some of these funds just need the cash on hand to be able to inject that cash.
1: And another important thing to remember, says Andrew Bauer, is that a sovereign wealth fund is not an economic panacea.
3: First thing to mention is not every country needs a sovereign wealth fund. There are lots of countries that either can manage their macroeconomy simply by borrowing and paying down their debt. There are a number of countries that do this quite effectively. Peru had a sovereign wealth fund. That it, it emptied the sovereign wealth fund during the COVID crisis, uh, justifiably. But it's also helped smooth fiscal expenditures and help future generations by by keeping debt levels low. So you don't need a sovereign wealth fund necessarily. The other reason why you wouldn't necessarily need a sovereign wealth fund, especially if you're a low-income country, is you don't need to save money. You need to spend money. You need to put money into education. You have to put money into healthcare, into clean water, into roads, into urban infrastructure. You you know, you need to do all the things to help your economy grow and create jobs. Putting your money into a fund and sending it to Europe and the United States won't necessarily help people today. So, So I think that sometimes there's a little bit too much emphasis on sovereign wealth funds and not enough emphasis on the other places you can put your money.
1: And I imagine, I mean, just because you've set up a sovereign wealth fund doesn't mean that the investments you make are going to be successful, does it? I mean, you could you could actually make a, a whole heap of poor investment decisions and, and lose a lot of money.
3: Oh, I mean, completely. I mean, there's some famous cases out there of sovereign wealth funds making terrible investments. Libya, a place that I work quite a lot, there's a famous case, the sovereign wealth fund investing $1.2 billion in a derivatives trade with Goldman Sachs and within six months losing 1.18 out of the $1.2 billion the Angolan Sovereign Wealth Fund, again, another famous case where uh, the president's son was given this $5 billion fund to essentially play with. He hired one of his good friends to be the asset manager. That asset manager collected massive fees for not doing a heck of a lot, then invested some of that money on land that he owned. So tons of cases of sovereign wealth funds mismanaging money
1: What's the appeal then of a sovereign wealth fund? Why have we seen them grow significantly in number over the last 10 or so years?
3: It's a great question. I mean, there are certain places where sovereign wealth funds are justified, right? I mean, Guyana, for example, in, in South America, they just discovered you know, massive amounts of oil. They're going to start producing soon. If they don't create a sovereign wealth fund, then that money is just going to overwhelm the economy and create something called Dutch disease, where you know, either you have inflation or exchange rate appreciation, and essentially it kills off all of their other industries. So there are justified reasons in, in certain places, but I think in many countries, sovereign wealth funds are a trend. They're, they're a trend like having a, a national airline or a stock exchange. They're not necessarily justified, but I've had a minister tell me when I asked him exactly this question, why are you creating a sovereign wealth fund? Your country doesn't really need one. He said, well, everyone else has one. And there's, there's no way to argue against that.
1: You're listening to Future
0: Tense, an ABC Radio National production. The Santiago principles are a set of best practice principles that sovereign funds defined for themselves back in 2008. And they were signed in the Chilean capital, which at the time was experiencing a number of domestic protests around how it should manage its copper wealth. It had recently, under its finance minister, Andres Velasco, set up two sovereign wealth funds to try and save the proceeds of its copper boom for a rainy day. However, citizens there at the time had strong views that that money should be distributed to meet present day needs and and rising inequality. So the Santiago Principle's for how sovereign funds should manage themselves and govern themselves were actually signed against a backdrop of really interesting domestic debate on whether sovereign funds should be distributing returns and part of their benefit to today's citizens or or the future. Essentially, those principles set out a series of guidelines for sovereign funds in terms of how they should be managed, how they should be invested and how they should be reporting and and disclosing on their activities. And I think there are approximately 30 sovereign funds globally that are formally members of that process and adhere to those principles.
1: There has been concern, hasn't there, around the development of sovereign wealth funds over those funds being used as instruments for international politics. Could I get you to explain what the issue is there?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of these funds and some of the, the wealthiest funds globally have been set up in non-Western economies, largely in East Asia and the Middle East. And these funds have been active foreign investors, so they've often identified investment opportunities in Western economies around major infrastructure and often key assets that are of national significance. There is clearly a concern around a shift in economic power away from the industrialised West and to these other centres of financial power. And that has played out through fears in foreign investment in terms of relinquishing control of some of our major assets, for instance, port assets in the US that had been sold to some of the Middle Eastern funds. You frequently visit this debate, obviously, in Australia through the desirability of Chinese sovereign investment into some of our major critical infrastructure. So there's a, a perception there that certain sovereign funds might be pursuing geopolitical or foreign policy goals of their sovereign sponsor. And we have to look carefully then at the implications for receiving those investment flows. Sovereign funds have been very deliberate about trying to communicate that their ultimate objective is as financial entities. So most sovereign funds are set up in order to preserve wealth and invest wealth on behalf of their sovereign sponsor and they typically have a explicit wealth maximisation objective. If they're pursuing best practice governance then their investment strategy will be set up to further that goal primarily and not necessarily to serve other ends of the sponsored state. That said, there are some funds that are very upfront about the fact where other objectives are being pursued through their investments. For instance, we could look to Singapore, to Tomasek, which has an explicit domestic development or nation-building mandate. So the majority of its portfolio is required to be invested in the Asian region and in Singapore to help foster the development of national champions locally. But that's a very transparent approach to that other policy objective that's being pursued through its investments.
1: At the New Economics Foundation in the UK, Duncan McCann and his colleagues have been researching how governance can be further tightened. To that end, they've come up with a set of principles to guide the development of funds in the future and to ensure that they work not just in a country's national interest, but in the interest of that country's citizens.
2: The seven principles, the first one really is that it's really about providing that planning and that investment for the long term. So about shifting the way we manage our economy from kind of year to year and election cycle to election cycle to thinking in 10, 20s and years and and multi-generations. The second principle, which ensures kind of that longevity of the fund, which is the fund should be permanent. And so what that means in technical language is that you are never using the principal, So the amount that you've actually invested to pay out, you are only paying out or using the return that you've generated over the past period. So this ensures that your fund is gonna grow in real terms from year to year, which is another also really important aspect, again, of the long-term nature and making sure that the fund is really viable. The fund really should have a social function. And a really good example here is in Alaska, where their permanent fund uses that fund to tackle kind of inequality directly by distributing cash payments, dividends, directly to all residents every year. And so as a result, it has one of the lowest levels of inequality among US states.
1: And your number four is that a fund must be ethical.
2: Well, absolutely. When it's holding such large sums of money, It's really, really important that it directs that money into ethical investments. Now, the meaning of ethical will obviously differ from country to country. And it's very important that that's done collaboratively with its citizens. And indeed, Norway had an excellent process before setting up its fund where it conducted a multi-year consultation with people and experts to decide what those ethical principles should be. The fifth one is then really about transparency and accountability. This is really vital. When an entity is holding such a huge amount of public wealth, which is what it is, it's it's the wealth of citizens, it's really, really important that there is clear transparency about what that money is doing and that those who are investing the money are clearly, clearly accountable. And here again, the most advanced kind of sovereign wealth funds, the Norwegians, the Australians and others are putting some of that into practice. The sixth principle, which is probably one that, you know, there's only one example in the world that does this, but, you know, we think is really, really important, is that it should be owned by the people rather than the state. And there are some really interesting, subtle changes that happen in the way that we conceptualise and in the staying power of these instruments if we shift the ownership from the state to the people. As I say, at the moment, there's just one example like that around the world, which is Alaska. And what it's really done for the Alaska Permanent Fund is really show some remarkable endurance in face of a really hostile moves by the state government to try and go in and raid the fund. So it really is good at at protecting that fund from kind of being used inappropriately by central government.
1: And your final principle is that the fund should make best use of the public assets we already own. Just explain that to us.
2: People forget When thinking about what these funds could do, that the states and governments already own a lot of very, very good assets. For instance, in in the report that we wrote, we look a lot at public land and property, which is managed very, very poorly here. And indeed, there's already a sovereign wealth fund here in the UK called the Crown Estate, which almost purely manages property and delivers really good returns. So it's about, again, just rethinking what we already have rather than needing to go straight to borrowing or raising additional finances. There are often loads of assets from companies to land, but also in the future thinking about intellectual property and possibly data and things like that, which could be placed in the fund to generate future revenues for the fund.
1: Angela Kamine, author of Citizens' Wealth, also sees future benefits in thinking anew about how sovereign funds are structured and used, and how greater participation by communities and their citizens can be encouraged.
0: I mean, there are a number of ways we can do this at its most direct or democratic. You do have the model of Alaska, which distributes an an annual check to its citizens called the permanent fund dividend and shares a portion of the fund's performance directly with citizens. And and there are arguments that that helps boost the awareness of the fund, the accountability of politicians in, in managing that fund. There was a debate several years ago in Alaska that that fund should just be dissolved and evenly split up between all Alaskans because ultimately it was their money and not the states and interestingly Alaskans voted against that understanding that the concept here was yes it was their money but it was the all generations of Alaskans money so there was a vote by the current generation to actually preserve that and keep quarantining it both from frittering by present-day citizens but also raids from politicians so that's an interesting model another way in which we can look to reflect citizen interests and promote their values through sovereign funds is how the funds actually invest their assets. So can we generate our returns in a way that are consistent with citizen or community values? Norway and New Zealand are great examples of how you can do this. Norway being probably the most radical here, they actually set up a committee of ethicists and they were charged with identifying what Norwegian values were, overlapping consensus around certain principles and values that were held to be Norwegian. And the fund is set up to invest according to those principles and is overviewed by an ethics council that tries to ensure those principles are upheld. So they're really interesting models. And then at the other end, you obviously have the question around should citizens more directly participate as managers in sovereign funds some of those debates have been explored in the pension setting as well. That is a um, an interesting debate, partly because you do benefit from a level of of technical understanding and and capability, obviously in the investment space. But there's certainly no reason why we can't be making our sovereign funds more transparent around their investment strategy and objectives and the outcomes that they promote for communities, and why we can't be equipping, citizens with more information to have views on how sovereign funds should go about pursuing those ends, whether or not they formally sit as sort of trustees or or managers on the funds, but just as active engaged citizens that are monitoring the behaviour and operations of these entities.
1: And could you just picking up on that last point, would it be possible to have a workable structure that actually in some way invited citizen representatives onto the administration or the, the board of the funds?
0: Well, there are models that resemble that approach in the investment management world. We obviously have super funds that have industry or employee representatives in thinking through how members' interests are promoted when they pursue their returns. That's one model that we could look at with sovereign funds. It it can be complex when you've got a large community and trying to properly represent various interests is, is always a challenge when you have small governing boards. But there are other mechanisms for feeding in citizen views around how funds might go about their investment, their allocation decisions. So we've seen, for instance, conservative financial institutions like the Bank of England conduct citizen panels across the country to get feedback on how that central bank is designing its monetary policy and whether the interests of the broader nation are being reflected in those quite traditional financial policy decisions. So that kind of mechanism, to have a sort of consultative and deliberative mechanism to feed in community and citizen views, would be something that sovereign funds could consider.
1: Finding consensus, though, within a society could be quite difficult in certain circumstances, couldn't it? I mean, I'm I'm thinking particularly of the United States over the last couple of years, which seems enormously polarised, trying to find consensus about how funds should be spent on a national level, you could imagine could be problematic if if you were trying to do that in in a country like that at this particular point in time.
0: Absolutely. So, I mean, a challenge of any democratic polity is, is trying to achieve consensus in terms of legitimacy of your mandate to act. But there's also something that comes from the democratic process itself, even when we can't reach majority consensus or an overlapping consensus about how our public assets or public funds or public policy decisions should be taken. So we can invite more citizen participation into the governance and the operations of funds, partly just to promote awareness of these entities and therefore enhance accountability around the funds themselves, but also to give citizens a sense of a stake in their public assets and their public wealth. And and that in itself is a legitimate end even if we don't all hold the same views about what these particular funds should be pursuing.
1: Dr Angela Kamine. We also heard today from Duncan McCann and Andrew Bauer. Go to the Future Tense website if you want further details. Thanks to my colleague and co-producer Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.